Estos son 20 minutos que jamás, jamás, jamás volverás a escuchar. Las Quintas from Santiago de Chile. <laughs> Thank you to Tony and his friends from uh, Chile. They sound like some niñas and niños. Am I right, Tony? Anyway, what they said was, welcome to 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. I'm pretty certain that's what they said. <laughs> my name is Doug Prezak, and thanks very much for listening. This is my morning voice, in case you don't know. It's, it's different than my 1130 at night record my podcast voice. No, this is, this is a, a morning voice. <laughs> hey, did you miss me? In case you didn't uh, listen to the temporary episode last week, I was off traveling to another part of California. I'll have more on that in a couple of minutes. But now it's time to check in and see who listened to either episode 94 or the temporary episode 95 and were probably ticked off at me for not being there. <laughs> my first hello goes to a, a first time on my list location of Hamilton, New Zealand. In case you didn't know, and I didn't know until about four seconds ago, Hamilton is a city in the Waikato region of New Zealand's North Island. It's famous for the Hamilton Gardens, which is a huge public park that features elaborate themed gardens ranging from Italian Renaissance to Japanese to the traditional Maori style. So hello to Hamilton. Thanks for coming back. If you did, <laughs> I never really know. The next salute goes to the village of Johnson City in Broome County, New York. I uh, knew someone from Broome County. <laughs> Not much more to that than I knew somebody from there. And hello to Rose City, Michigan, which has a population of 641. That uh, is up, actually, from 638 in uh, 2021. So congrats on that uh, three-person population growth there. <laughs> now, what you need to do get the other 640 to listen. That would be a coup. Uh, while I was away from the old Audio Technica microphone in the booth here for a few days, a couple of things crossed my mind. Now, first, no one let me know where everyone is going when they yell, let's go after some athletic feat. So thanks a lot for helping me out. <laughs> Nothing quite like getting scolded by a podcast host, is there? Uh, and second, the reason I headed to the middle of California was so my executive producer and I could attend our granddaughter's graduation. It was a lovely affair, except that it was 102 degrees that day oh at 4 p.m., which is traditionally the hottest time of the day. And we were in a football stadium on the sunny side of the stadium on metal bleachers. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think you get the idea there. As we were cooking our keisters, uh, we got to thinking uh, and talking about graduations. You know, back in my day, when the cover wagons were heading towards Oregon, it used to be there was a graduation for high schoolers and college graduates. Nowadays, there's a graduation ceremony for kindergartners. They have them for sixth graders, and they probably have them for every grade in between. And the eighth graders have a graduation before high school. Then the high schoolers have a graduation. When did this all become a thing? Man, when that clock hit three o'clock on my last day of school in the sixth grade, the last thing the teacher saw of me was a plume of dust like the roadrunner. There was no graduation ceremony, but you know me. Uh, I need to know exactly when and why people dress up in black gowns and shake hands with someone they've never seen before and get handed a piece of paper that everybody thinks is their diploma, but it really isn't. So I did some research so you didn't have to. 
mostly because I figure you're probably still recovering from sitting on that uh, hot stadium seat or in the gymnasium watching your graduate. So let's start here. First, a graduation ceremony is technically a cultural transition that's classified as a rite of passage. So what's a rite of passage, you ask? Well, in 1909, anthropologist Arnold Van Gennep, he had the answer. He came up with the term. He believed that passage of rituals had three steps. One, separation from society. Two, inculcation transformation. <laughs> I typed it. I still don't know what it means. And three, a return to society and a new status. Each culture either creates its own rite of passage ceremony or it acquires one being handed down as in tradition or both. According to Glenn Cooper, he's a BYU history professor. He says the concept of receiving a degree comes from Islam and is associated with getting a degree from a set curriculum. The ceremony in Islamic tradition is vindication of knowledge that licenses one to teach what one has learned. Others say graduation ceremonies date back to the 12th century. Some feel it began with the scholastic monks and their ceremonies in robes and has evolved to kind of fit society in which is celebrated ever since. Now, there are actually two different types of graduation ceremonies. There's the commencement and there's the baccalaureate. Hey, Doug, you're saying to yourself, what's the difference between a commencement and a baccalaureate? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, the commencement is when the graduates are handed their diplomas and they walk across the stage, they flip their tassels, and they shake someone's hand. The baccalaureate ceremony formally recognizes the achievements of students who are in honor societies and who have earned academic excellence. However, having two ceremonies can be expensive, frankly, a lot of work. So often, the baccalaureate is blended with the commencement, making it one long, long event, especially on a hot bench. The American Heritage Dictionary defines a baccalaureate as, one, the degree of bachelor conferred upon graduates of most U.S. colleges and universities, and two, the farewell address delivered in the form of a sermon to the graduating class of a high school or college. The baccalaureate ceremony dates back to 1432 at Oxford University, where each bachelor was required to deliver a sermon in Latin as part of an academic exercise. Today, each graduating student need not give a sermon. Thank God. It was 102 degrees. <laughs> it can be done by the dean or the principal of the school or invited guest or by the school valedictorian. The valedictorian is the person who is considered the student with the highest scholastic standing. This may be determined by tests or by a voting of the student body, oh, man, <laughs> or in some other fashion, depending on the school's customs. The valedictorian delivers a speech known as the valediction to his fellow classmates on behalf of them. It usually is a speech that expresses the ups and downs they've all gone through and provides a youthful insight and a hopeful future. There have been times when the valedictorian has used this opportunity for his or her own political agenda, but for the most part, it's a time to express to everyone dedication, commitment, honesty, and perseverance, and the needed ingredients to find their way in the world once they be given an education. I have a million dollar idea. Nobody steal this, okay? I'm going to make a game card and call it valedictorian bingo. 
each card is going to have a whole bunch of uh, graduation buzzy words on it, like dedication and commitment and honesty. And I'll throw in some other words like party and spring break and prom. And then when the valedictorian is doing his or her thing, you X out the words. I'm going to sell them in a three pack for five bucks to everybody attending a graduation. I'll set up a little card table outside the entrance, buy your bingo packet here. And then, you know, you get five in a row and you shout out bingo. Can you imagine everybody in the stadium looking at their little bingo cards? Come on, say dedication. That's all I need. (laughs) That's fun times right there. I don't care who you are. Uh, If you win, you're going to get a Mylar balloon that says congratulations. Back to the speech. The baccalaureate can be serious or lighthearted. In some cases, a time limit is set on the length of the speech, depending on the size of the graduating class. In other cases, the weather is a big factor if the ceremony is being held outdoors. (laughs) Not where I was. All right, it's time for a break. And we come back, let's talk about those caps and gowns. Those are some fashion statements. And what is up with that pomp and circumstance? (laughs) Don't go away. Be really refreshed. Work and play at your best. Enjoy the refreshingness. Pause for a Coke. Ice cold. Coca-Cola. Pause for a Coke. Did everybody pause for a Coke? I didn't. <laughs> I have to have water. If I drink a Coke and I try and talk, I get that throat gurgle thing going on. And as a last thing you people want to hear is my throat gurgling. So anyway, let's get back to it, all right? What's with the fashion statement cap and gown for graduation? <laughs> What's that all about? Well, the answer goes back to the time when the first universities were being founded in the 12th and 13th centuries. The universities were typically founded by the clergy and both the professors as well as the students wore gowns and hoods that signified a religious status. Most of the medieval scholars had made certain vows and clerical robes were their main form of dress to begin with. Also, since students and faculty wore their gowns all the time, gowns were a way to differentiate the people at the university from residents of the town where the university was located. Many suggest that wearing the gowns all the time was also a way to provide added warmth in the typically unheated buildings of the time. This could also provide an explanation why the gowns had hoods. Now, as time passed, these English and European traditions followed their way to the states and the early universities that were being established here. As it was overseas, students were required to wear their college habits all the time. Oxford and Cambridge are actually two of the few universities worldwide that require their professors to wear the gown within the classroom, signifying their educational status. But during the period immediately following the Civil War, there was a general distaste for anything British, which included academic clothing such as gowns. This was when academic attire began to be strictly reserved for graduation. It's been noted that one of the reasons for everyone sharing the same dress on graduation day was a way to remove any disparities between a wealthy individual graduating and someone who perhaps couldn't even afford a single suit. In the university's eyes, and in the eyes of all those who were attending the graduation, everyone was equal when it came to the academic achievements. Therefore, they all dressed the same. It wasn't until the late 1800s that colors were assigned to signify certain areas of study, but they were only standardized in the United States. European institutions have always had diversity in their academic dress, but American institutions employ a definite system of dress thanks to Gardner Cottrell Leonard from Albany, New York. 
After designing gowns for his 1887 class at Williams College, Leonard took an interest in the subject and published an article on academic dress in 1893. In 1894, an American intercollegiate commission met to establish a standardized style for both robes and hoods. It was determined that there would be certain standards that graduating attire should adhere to, such as that all robes should be black, hoods would be made of the same material as the gowns, and only the lining of the hood could indicate individual universities. While the gown hasn't changed much over the years, the graduation hat, on the other hand, has had many different iterations, the most common being the mortarboard hat. Now, this style of cap, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, is believed to have been developed in the 15th century, and it evolved from the square-shaped berettas used by the Catholic clerics, scholars, and professors. If you think back to some of those period pieces you watch on Netflix, yeah, you recognize those big square hats the Catholics used to wear. They became a mortarboard. Because of the shape, many feel that the reason the hat is square was to represent the mortarboard used by the master bricklayers at the time. Others feel the meaning is obvious. It simply represents the shape of a book and gives a scholarly appearance to those who wore it on their heads. Nothing says scholarly like walking around with a book on your head. I'm telling you right there. <laughs> Others feel it represented the shape of the Oxford campus. Whatever the reason, it seems to be the shape that has remained most popular and accepted throughout the years. The tassel worn on the mortarboard is one item of pomp and circumstance that has probably allowed for the greatest latitude when it comes to traditions. It's been black or the university's colors or the colors of a specific college, or the colors of an academic discipline. There are four different colors of tassels that represent what degree the graduates are receiving. Yellow is for a bachelor's degree in science. Pink is for a degree in music. Brown for fine arts. And white for a bachelor's degree in general education. The tassel has also been used to indicate the membership in a national honor society or other awards. Now, during the 1950s, students became more interested in using different colors to represent their particular school, the way European countries have been doing since the 1800s. This is something that has grown in popularity over the years here in the United States. As it always does, and as time changes, so do the accepted standards that are applied to the traditional graduation attire. While there is an intercollegiate code that sets a standard that colleges and high schools are expected to follow, these are voluntary and not all institutions entirely adhere to it. That being said, the black gown and mortarboard cap are still the most commonplace combination. Now what about that song? You know which one I'm talking about. I heard it repeated nine times this past weekend. <laughs> there were so many graduates, the poor band just had to keep playing it over and over and over again. It's in my head. I cannot get it out. It is the worst earworm ever. And in case you don't know, the song is called Pomp and Circumstance. Now, Pomp and Circumstance is the traditional graduation march. It was composed by Sir Edward Elgar and first performed on October 19, 1901 in Liverpool, England. It's also known as, quote, Land of Hope and Glory. The tune was modified and the lyrics were added to celebrate the crowning of King Edward VII. When Sir Edgar received an honorary doctorate from the Yale University in 1905, Pomp and Circumstance was played in honor of his accomplishments. 
The piece quickly became fashionable to play at other commencements. Now, because so much American culture stems from our British roots, it's assumed that this is the reason the song Pomp and Circumstance became the standard march for graduation ceremonies here in the States. However, music does change with the times. Not every commencement exercise today uses Elgar's Pomp and Circumstance. But you know what? This podcast does. It's time to move my tassel to the other side. Whichever one's the right one, I still don't know. But before I march out without my mortarboard, because I threw it in the air and I don't know where it landed, what have we learned? Well, we learned that in 1432, Oxford University graduates had to give a speech in Latin. I say bring that back just for the fun of it. <laughs> and we learned the song you're hearing right now has an alternate title called Land of Hope and Glory and I Hope. You enjoyed the past 20 minutes. <laughs> what a horrible segue. Hey, it's shorter than any other graduation you've ever been to, so you're welcome. <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode number 95. Thank you very much for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next time. On 20 Minutes, you'll never, ever, ever get back. Bye-bye. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at uh, 20MYNGB, 20MYNGB, and that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, if you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the uh, website at 20minutespodcast.com. So it's 20minutespodcast.com. And uh, you can uh, leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take, take a look at those two things if you'd like and stay informed. And I'll, as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes. You'll never get back. Bye-bye.